Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, the people of God, this morning. My name is Brandon Stern. I'm one of the pastors here and a member of our preaching team. And this morning's sermon will cover 1 Samuel chapter 27 and 28. You can find that on page 258 in the chair Bibles in front of you. 1 Samuel 27 and 28, though most of our time will be spent in chapter 27. Well, before we get to chapter 27, let me quickly review what's been going on in our exciting journey through 1 Samuel. So God's people, the nation of Israel, have asked for a king so that they could be like all the other nations. They wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. And God's prophet, Samuel, warned God's people about choosing a king for themselves, but they refused to listen And so Saul was anointed king over Israel. And at that time, God was very clear through his prophet Samuel. Israel and their king's success was dependent on them staying faithful to the Lord. King Saul was to obey the voice of the Lord and lead the people in obedience to their God. But as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, King Saul repeatedly failed to trust and obey the Lord. In chapters 13 and 15, we have back-to-back stories of King Saul disobeying the clear instructions of his God. Instead of listening to the voice of God, he allowed his fears and the voices of those around him to lead him in disobeying God's commands. And this results in God's judgment of Saul. In chapter 15, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Why? Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. He's not obeyed me. This was Saul's problem. Instead of obeying the voice of God, he did what he thought was best. And he always had all kinds of excuses for why he did what he did. But the simple reality God's word prints before us is that Saul disobeyed. God had said to do X, Saul chose to do Y. And so for his repeated rejections of the Lord, God chose to reject Saul as king. Now, at this point in our story, we are introduced to a new character, David, whom God chooses to be the next king of Israel. And at first, Saul and David get along well, but eventually Saul's jealousy gets the best of him, and he hates David, and he wants to kill David. And so for the past several chapters, David has been on the run for his life from King Saul. Saul and his army have been chasing David and his men and their families for years now, and David is exhausted. He's worn out. He's tired of the trial. So let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Look with me at verse 1. David said to himself, literally, he said to his heart, One of these days, I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David's self-talk here is not good. 
At other times in his life, he strengthened himself with the promises of God. But here, David seems hopeless and discouraged. The stresses, the hardships of being on the run for year after year after year have caught up to him, and he just wants it all to end. He's so desperate that he's even willing to go to Israel's enemies, the Philistines, to escape from Saul. Verse 2, so David set out with his 600 men and went to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish in Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoham of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So David's plan has worked, right? Saul has finally given up searching for him. But now David has to figure out how to live under the nose of his enemy. So look at verse 5. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the king of Judah today. The length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. But this was far from a vacation. David and his men stayed quite busy during their stay in the land of the Philistines. Verse 8, David and his men went up and they raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, where did you raid today? David replied, oh, you know, the south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeremelites, the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, no, this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So here we see that David is trying to have his cake and eat it too. In attacking the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, David is destroying some of Israel's ancient enemies, which the people of Israel would have appreciated. However, when he would report back on what he was doing, he led Achish to believe that he was actually attacking his own people. And so verse 12 says, So Achish trusted David, thinking, Since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. But when you play with fire, you eventually get burned. And in the beginning of chapter 28, we see things begin to heat up for David. 28 verse 1. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, You know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. Oh, no. David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. Cryptic, but... So Achish said to David, Very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. David is in an impossible situation here. If he refuses to fight with Achish, his cover will be blown and he will be killed. 
However, if he fights with Achish, he will have to fight against his very own people, the, na- <clears throat> the nation of Israel, the people he has been anointed king over. So this would be political suicide for him and something that David would never, ever be comfortable doing. So either way he looks at it, he's doomed. He's between a rock and a hard place with no easy way out. And at this point in the narrator, narrative, our narrator hits pause. He'll pick up the story of David again in chapter 29, but for now, he wants to leave us in suspension. Suspense, sorry. (laughs) We're suspended in suspense. There is another story that's happening, and that story must be told, and so the scene now is going to shift to King Saul. So King Saul, he's now 72 years old. He's been ruling Israel for 42 years He learns that the Philistines are preparing for war, and so he gathers his men together, and he heads out to meet the Philistines. And in some ways, this is par for the course. Saul has spent most of his 42 years fighting the Philistines. But this time, there's something different. So let's pick up the story in verse 3. In verse 3, the narrator provides us with some helpful context for the story he's about to tell. Verse 3. By this time, Samuel, the prophet, had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. Hmm. At first, these details seem pretty random, but they are actually very pertinent to the story, as we're about to find out. So let's keep reading. Look at verses 4 through 5. So the Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. So Saul does what any king would do. He sizes up the other army, and what he quickly realizes is that things do not look good for him. It's possible that he even thinks that David is with the Philistines. And so in his mind, his two greatest enemies, David and the Philistines, have come together to destroy him. And so he is overwhelmed with fear. And so he inquires of the Lord. He's desperately seeking some sort of assurance, some sort of direction for what he should do. But look at verse 6. Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. In dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. So Saul tries every method available to him to get an answer from the Lord, but he's only met with God's deafening silence. The sad reality is that Saul has spent so many years not listening to the voice of his God, that now, when he wants to hear God's voice, the Lord refuses to answer him. He's met with heaven's silence. And I think this is a sobering warning for us to not make a habit of ignoring God's word. The Bible gives us no guarantee that we can repeatedly, consistently ignore God's word and then expect God to answer us when we finally call out to him. 
And this is why Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't wait until tomorrow. Today is the day to listen to God's voice. But Saul has failed to do this over and over again. And now he is left with God's silence. And this only adds to Saul's fear. And so Saul does what Saul has made a habit of doing all throughout his life when he is afraid. He takes matters into his own hands and he disobeys his God. Look at verse seven. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Wow. This is incredibly revealing of Saul's heart. In a matter of moments, he went from let's reach out to the Lord to let's reach out to a medium. It's like he tried calling heaven, heaven didn't pick up, so he hung up and tried calling hell. This verse is supposed to shock us. What Saul is doing is absolutely wrong. It's wicked, and he knows it. Remember, Saul is the one who had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. Saul knew that God's law had forbidden his people from taking part in occultic practices. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. God tells his people very clearly, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or a spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord, and the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. You, Israel, must be blameless before the Lord your God. Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. Was God unclear? No, his people were to have nothing to do with occultic practices. But why? Why does God make such a big deal about it? What is it that makes these things so bad? Well, interestingly, the Bible doesn't let us simply say, oh, it's because they're all fakes and it just wastes your money. Sure, it's true, there are fakers out there who are really good at manipulating and preying on vulnerable people. But what we as Christians must never forget is that there are also evil spiritual forces that exist and are opposed, are hostile to God and his people. And so the reason God gives us for not participating in occultic practices is not because they don't work, but because they are wicked. 
They are a rejection of God. Think about it. When we turn to occultic practices, we are turning to something other than God for help, for comfort, for guidance. We are looking to mediums or spiritists or fortune tellers or horoscopes to give us a word of reassurance, to give us direction in life, to let us know that our futures will be okay. And so as one author says, when we do these things, we walk away from the God who loves us and into the hands of people who exploit us, or worse still, into the hands of demons who deceive us. And this is what makes occultic practices so wicked. They are a complete rejection of God. Instead of listening to and entrusting our futures into his wise and loving care, we take matters into our own hands and listen to fakes or demons to try to gain the help the comfort, and the guidance that we so desperately want in life. And this is why, interestingly, immediately after condemning all the occultic practices in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, we read this in verse 15. The following verse, right after that section I just read. Verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. What God is saying is don't listen to these wicked voices, these detestable voices. Listen to my voice. It's my voice that must guide you. It's my voice that you can trust with your future. It's my voice that you must listen to and obey. And so the question before us, church, is how are we doing listening to the voice of our God? Out of all the voices in your life, which ones talk the loudest? Which ones are you giving the most attention to? Maybe you aren't tempted to consult a medium or visit a fortune teller, but there are plenty of other godless ways for our hearts to replace trust in God with trust in something else? Do you find yourself stressing over your future, desperately trying to find a way to control it, to predict it, to get your hands on it through careful planning or budgeting? Do you feel at times that your Bible is an insufficient guide? It's too dated. It just doesn't have the answers you need, so you find yourself looking elsewhere for answers. You're looking for an extra message from God to give you the peace and the comfort and the direction in life that you're so desperately longing for. And what we must realize is that as Tim Chester says, the problem is not that God has not spoken to us, but that often we do not want to hear what God has to say. We do not want to admit our need of God and I think here's it really important. We do not want to submit our lives to God. You see, when we do these things, when we're looking for other things, we are revealing that what we are wanting most in that moment is not really our God, but just something that our God can give us. 
We are treating God as if he's a means to an end. He has become our way to get what matters most to our hearts. Things like comfort, guidance, and reassurance of the future. And so, when God seems silent, we can be so quick to turn to other means to get what our hearts really desperately long for. And this is exactly what King Saul did. King Saul wasn't interested in knowing the Lord. That wasn't why he was inquiring of the Lord. He was interested in using the Lord to get what he truly wanted, reassurance, direction, and help. But before we continue this story, I think there's another important question that we should ask. How did Saul go from being someone who removed the mediums and spiritists from the land to someone who says, go find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult with her? I think the lyrics of Casting Crown song Slow Fade help answer this question. They write, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. And thoughts invade, choices made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Saul did not just wake up one day and decide to consult a medium. For years, Saul had made a practice of disobeying God's commands. For years, Saul had feared other people more than his God. What is happening now is the result of countless compromises along the way. Saul has not trained himself in obedience to God's word, and so it is oh so easy now in his moment of fear to disobey God. And it's here that we learn a very important lesson about sin. Sin is never content with just one compromise. It always ruthlessly demands more and more and more from us. You see, disobeying God has a snowball effect in our lives. One little sin turns into another sin, into another sin, until we have become ensnared and we've crossed lines that we never thought possible. Think about it. Very rarely does someone set out with the goal to destroy their marriage through adultery. How does it happen? It happens slowly. Innocent conversations with someone of the opposite sex become a little less innocent. Emotions begin to get involved. And sooner or later, you are crossing lines that you never thought you'd cross. That's because it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Saul's problem was that he has made a habit of disobeying God. And so now, all these many years later, he is crossing lines that his younger self would have never thought possible. This is the seriousness of sin. It has a gravitational pull toward death 
and destruction. So let's reflect on this in our own lives. Where in your life are you excusing your current disobedience to God? What are you doing that God says not to do? And what are you not doing that God says to do? Where has obedience to God's commands become too inconvenient or too difficult for you? Are you making small, seemingly insignificant ethical compromises at work? Maybe just fudging the numbers or the truth just a bit to make yourself look better? Are you participating in conversations that you shouldn't just so that you can fit in and feel accepted? Are you doing things sexually that God in his wisdom and love and goodness for you has forbidden? Where in your life are you feeding the monster that wants to destroy you? Where are you deceiving yourself into thinking that the compromises you are making today won't make greater compromises tomorrow all the more easier for you? Hear, hear God's word of warning to you today. Your sin will never stay content where it is. It will always want more. It will continue to wrap its tentacles around you and pull you farther and farther in. So do not play games with your sin. Do not befriend it. Do not ignore it. Do not excuse it. Fight against it. Make war against it. And commit by God's grace to submit every aspect of your life to the good the wise, the loving authority of your God. This is what Saul repeatedly failed to do. So let's pick up the story now in verse 8 and see where a life of repeated, consistent disobedience to God leads. Verse 8. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult the spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said, Whoa, you surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Now, you would think a statement like this would have pricked Saul's conscience but Saul is too far gone at this point. So listen to his shocking, blasphemous reply. Verse 10. Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Saul has such little regard for the Lord God that he flippantly uses his holy name to assure a medium that she won't get punished for breaking God's law. It's hard to imagine how Saul could show any less regard for God. But the medium is satisfied with his answer, and so she asks in verse 11, who is it that you want me to bring up for you? 
Saul answers, bring up Samuel for me. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, what does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Okay, let's just pause here for a second and acknowledge that we probably can bring a lot of questions to this text that God doesn't answer for us. We don't know why or if, we don't know if the medium normally makes contact with the dead and, or if this was just a really unique and even startling experience for her. Hence her scream in verse 12. But what we do know and what God wants us to focus on in this story is that Samuel has come back from the dead to deliver God's word of judgment to Saul one last time. It's God's word that's in charge in a witch's home. Look at verse 15. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, Samuel asked Saul. Well, I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. You see the Philistines, they're fighting against me and God has turned away from me. He doesn't even answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, well, since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Saul, you did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, for that reason, for your disobedience, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. This is a terrifying word of judgment, but it is one that Saul has heard before. Samuel's clear about this. The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. God has been clear throughout Saul's life that his disobedience has cost him the kingdom. Because of Saul's failure to obey the voice of his God, the Lord has turned away from him and has become his enemy. He is now abandoned by God and facing the terrifying prospect of his coming death and judgment for his sin. Within 24 hours, he and his sons will be dead and the army of Israel routed by the Philistines. And this news is just too much for Saul to bear. Look at verse 20. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, look, your servant has obeyed you. 
I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. Saul refused saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. Notice the sad irony here at the end of Saul's life. Having failed to listen to the voice of God throughout his life, Saul is now listening to the voice of a medium. It's a tragic end to a tragic life. His disobedience to God has led to God's abandonment of him and the terrifying, soul-crushing expectation of God's judgment. This story paints a vivid and terrifying picture of the consequences for disobedience to God. And our hearts go out to Saul, don't they? As we see him sitting there, hunched over in fear and exhaustion on the medium's bed, without God, without hope. It's a miserable, pitiable sight. And yet, as we contemplate Saul's tragic end, we are invited to consider our own futures as well. Where are our lives heading? What will happen when it comes time for us to die? And the Bible is clear about these things. All of us, without exception, have disobeyed God and are justly deserving of his judgment. We have all failed to love God and to love others as we should. The default future awaiting every single one of us is the same as Saul's. To be abandoned by God, fearful and oh so alone, facing God's crushing judgment for our sin. But the good news, the beautiful, wonderful news of Christianity is that that doesn't have to be your future. Because about a thousand years after King Saul ate his last meal in a medium's house, there was another king who ate his last meal on the night before his death. But that king was not dying for his own disobedience, but for the disobedience of all his people. And when it came time for that king to die, like King Saul, he screamed into the darkness, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he was met with heaven's silence. And though this king had never once disobeyed his God, he died fearful and alone under the crushing weight of God's judgment. And he did that so that you and I would never have to face the terror of God's abandonment and judgment for our sin. 
you see in dying alone and forsaken by God under his judgment, King Jesus satisfied divine justice. He died in our place and for our sins. And then he rose from the dead three days later so that anyone, anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus can be saved and never ever have to know the terror of God's abandonment, but instead can know the comfort of God's love. They can know the comfort and peace of his forgiveness and the assurance of his promises to never ever leave us or forsake us. So if you are here today and you have not confessed your disobedience to God and asked him to save you, I want to plead with you to do that now. Do not let Saul's tragic end become your tragic end. Call out to God to save you. Confess your sin and your disobedience to him and ask him to forgive you. God is willing and eager to forgive anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in his son, King Jesus. And for those of us who are trusting in King Jesus, may a text like this one serve as a gracious reminder to us of what our Savior has rescued us from. Instead of dying for our sins, Without hope and without God, we have been adopted into God's family and given the sure and certain hope of eternal life with him in the new creation. And so, because we are God's dearly loved children, let us listen and obey his voice of grace and wisdom. Let us not go looking elsewhere for reassurance, for comfort, or for guidance in our times of uncertainty, but let us rest confidently, contentedly, trustingly in his word and promises, loving and trusting and treasuring our Savior who died in our place and for our sins. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for providing your very own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our substitute. <clears throat> to come to this earth and become a man, to live a perfect life of obedience to you, something that we could never do, and then willingly die, forsaken and alone, under your just judgment for our sins. But thank you that he didn't stay dead, but having satisfied divine wrath, he rose three days later, never to die again. And now anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, takes refuge in him, can be saved and never have to bear the awful, terrible consequences for their sin. Your grace and your mercy truly are amazing. So help us now to live as obedient children, trusting and listening to your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.